Jesus. Well, what a great God we serve. Amen. And he's wonderful. You may be seated for just a brief moment. I, I would like, uh, everyone, if you would, before we dismiss our classes, I want to uh, direct your attention. We're about to play a video. And uh, in, as you're getting to your seats and everybody getting ready, I want to mention starting next month, March, and continuing through May, so three months, March, April, and May, we are going to have in the sanctuary, there will be three different classes going on. Over to my left, Pastor Lucas will be teaching a class. Uh, back here to my right, uh, Pastor Trevor, and back where Pastor Jeremy is sitting, around that area, there'll be a class. So there'll be three different groups in the sanctuary, plus we will launch what's called First Steps, which is a new, revised, updated, and fresh approach to discipleship that Pastor Jeremy and Sister Kiara Cole and their team are going to lead for us. And that's going to start in the month of March. Now, for the live stream, for those of you who are watching right now, you're wondering, well, what's going to happen if I'm not there, I'm sick, or whatever? I am going to pre-record a message uh, that will be aired at the time of the live stream. So there will still be something on the live stream. So if there's a weather event or if there is a reason why you're not here, there will still be something going on on our live stream. We have a very healthy presence on our social media, and we want to maintain that and not lose anything during these three months. But here, it would be broken up into three different groups. The idea being that we can grow together. Very rarely are there questions on a Wednesday night. If there are, they're typically uh, predetermined and, and pre-given, and then we ask them like what we did with the panel discussion. Whereas in a session like this, broken up, there will be greater opportunity for questions and growth and development. Meanwhile, the children will still be doing what they're doing. The uh, teens and youth will still be doing their group, so we'll just be doing a different venue style of learning together on Wednesday nights, okay? So if you've got any questions on that, please see me or any one of the pastoral team members. They can kind of maybe explain it to you if you've got questions about it uh, or, or what the classes are going to be on. Uh, real briefly, Pastor Lucas, you're doing Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, so he's basically taking Christ through to the coming of Christ, so the birth of Christ to the coming of Christ, the second coming. And Pastor Trevor's Old Testament survey, taking Genesis through uh, Malachi. And then Pastor Jeremy, uh, I think you had a good title for it the other day. What was it called? Judah to Jesus or something like that? And so he's going to talk about the prophecies leading up to Christ specifically, and then the prophecies of the coming, uh, second coming of Christ. And so there'll be three classes you can choose from uh, during that time. So, and then of course, next steps, or first steps. If you're interested in first steps, watch this video and then talk to the Coles. I was saved on February 14th of 2016 at the Church of Omaha. In 2003, in Ramona, California, I came into church, and then later, a few years later, I left the faith. I was baptized, um, filled with the Holy Ghost in 1985, um, May 19th, and I was baptized in Jesus' name by in water um, one week afterwards. And they didn't tell me what I had to do. They showed me why they believed what they believed and allowed me to do it for myself. And the Lord has shown me through miracles, through signs, that He is still working not just in my life but on my peers life that I influence on the daily basis and um, filled me I was so excited and so joy joyous you know God's promise came to pass in my life
want to give a shout out to those on the video. Thank you for doing the interviews, all of you, as well as Brother Colin for getting this together. And, and there is a full-length video, about 15 minutes, which will be uploaded into, Brother Colin, help me, are we going to put that in the, Brother Colin, we're going to put that in the prayer page online? Okay, and are we also going to put that on our social media? So you can find the full interview. There are quest three questions, I believe, and there are answers, but that was just a snippet of it to highlight what we're doing for uh, this uh, launching of First Steps. So again, if you're interested in that, please talk to Pastor Jeremy, Sister Kiara, and get with them. I know some have already signed up, and there is still room if you want to get involved with that tonight. So rave your hands if you would real quick. If you, if you want to know who they are, that's them right there. Amen. God bless you in Jesus' name. All right, let's go ahead and dismiss our children's and uh, student ministries. God bless them and our staff. Appreciate their hard work. Praise God. It is good to be home tonight. Amen. I enjoy the opportunities that God opens up for me to preach out, but there really is no place like home. And I mean that wholeheartedly, and I love all of you, and and uh, thank you for your prayers. While my wife and I were in Anamosa, Iowa this weekend, uh, one was filled with the Holy Ghost. We praise God for that. Uh, there were some who uh, uh, responded and God touched them and ministered to them in a special way and just believing God for great things uh, there. And, but again, happy to be home and ready to get right back in the saddle and see what God's going to do. If you would join me in the book of Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 41 through the end of the chapter for our text tonight. Acts 2, and we're going to begin at verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. This might indicate that some didn't gladly receive the word, because it says then they that gladly received. In other words, there could have been some that didn't. It's possible. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That's going to be the key verse we're going to come back to later tonight, but let's read the rest of it. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. <clears throat> Tonight, as we continue our reaffirming the fundamentals uh, study, I simply want to title this Continuing Steadfastly. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is your church, not mine. And I pray right now that you would minister your word through me, cause my tongue to be the pen of a ready writer, and write your words upon our hearts. Let me walk in your spirit and not in my flesh, for your word is anointed and appointed for this hour. And we ask for you to do these things, giving a confirmation of your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. God's purpose for his church is that it will continuously be steadfast and grow until He returns. Now, growth 
can be defined numerically, obviously. It can also be, and possibly uh, the better definition is also maturity in growth, but both will affect the other. A church that just swells with numbers but has no maturity is not good, but a church that has maturity but doesn't see an increase is not good either. You really do need both. Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 45 and 46, and also in Luke 19, 11 through 27, referred to workers and faithful servants who would continue their duties until he returned. In the parable of the servants, Jesus also said this, Luke 12, 37, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. The word watching there doesn't mean looking at your watch and waiting impatiently for something to happen, but rather meaning to work or to act or to do what God has set for you to do. Let me also say this, not only does God intend for his church to grow and continue steadfastly, God built his church to last. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not like, uh, you know, blockbuster video that's no longer around because they didn't change with the times. God intended for His church to last, to spread across every continent and century and to every culture and community until He returns to rapture the redeemed. Now, some have taught and have even believed that the church died out sometime around 325 A.D. or thereabouts, before, after, and then were ushered into what's called the Dark Ages and was somewhat resurrected in the Reformation briefly, but then all of a sudden, boom, the turn of the 20th century, 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, and 1906 Azusa Street, wow, Pentecostalism was reborn, and praise God, here we are today. But that's not true. And I'm going to spend a good portion of this message as we start going into it to show you historically that that's not true. Many faiths will trace their roots back to a man. For example, Calvinism traces its roots back to the Reformation and a man by the name of John Calvin. Methodists and specifically Wesleyans trace their heritage to John Wesley. Luther, Lutheranism, goes back to Martin Luther. Even the Mormons go to Joseph Smith, and the list could go on and on. But there is fundamental necessity that we trace our roots to the Bible, to the book of Acts. Some would say that Pentecostalism is the byproduct of the Protestant Reformation and the great outpouring of the early 1900s, but again, they're wrong. I'll never forget the time I was in uh, Caribou, Maine, and I had found some sort of yellowish, uh, you know, like that, that uh, fiber-type paper, and I had burnt the edges and crumpled it, you know, like it had been found somewhere. And, and I got to the pulpit, and I said, I found the original documents of the founding of our church. Well, everybody thought I was meaning that specific building, church, established in wherever, 1973 or whatever it was. Uh, as I begin to read, though, they realized I had printed the Bible on that. And, you know, our birth doesn't go back to a man, unless it's the son of man. 
um, Jesus Christ. Our, our birth doesn't go back to denominationalism. The birth of apostolic Pentecostalism goes back to Jesus Christ who said, I'm going to build this church on this rock. Not Peter. He's not the rock. He's a pebble. It, it was the rock of his faith to, to be able to declare, you are the Christ, the Son. That's what he built his church on. And he built it to last. Okay? And when it was poured out in Acts chapter 2, that's the birth of the church. And so, you know, Pentecost Sunday, even though a person can receive the Holy Ghost anytime, just like somebody did in Anamosa this weekend, it, it wasn't, quote unquote, Pentecost Sunday. That's later, I think, in May of this year. But the fact is, that is the birthday of the church. Now, reason I don't believe uh, in part, and I'll just give you a, a, a brief introduction here, and then we'll kind of jump into this a little bit. But um, if the Reformation helped to birth what we now know today as Pentecostalism, then how do you answer and describe Erasmus, who wrote the Greek New Testament, which was used by the translators for uh, all of the Bibles that predated, or most of the Bibles that predated the King James, including uh, then also for the King James. Erasmus said, anyone who can read and understand Greek can walk away knowing that there's only one God and Jesus Christ is the one true God. And this was about 1400s. Michael Servetus, who was a contemporary of his, who also could read Greek and Hebrew, also said there's only one God. Meanwhile, John Calvin is beginning Calvinism and Protestantism and saying there's a trinity. And he's saying, no, there's not. And writes a book to, uh, against what John Calvin was saying. John Calvin caught up with him and instead of having you know, a gentlemanly debate, decides to burn him at the stake along with his books. Uh, interestingly enough, Michael Servetus also discovered pulmonary circulation, but that's another message for another time. Um, but nonetheless, he was also very wise when it comes to the medical field. So I will agree that uh, these events of the early 1900s certainly uh, brought about uh, an awakening or a sense of that and helped to gain momentum. But the reality is that throughout every century, there has been an apostolic, Jesus-named, tongue-talking, oneness-believing, holy-living group of people that continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The book of Acts actually ends in verse 31 explaining that the preaching of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ, that when Paul did this, no one hindered him. That phrase, no one hindered him, means unstoppable. If the kingdom of God and the preaching of Jesus Christ are unstoppable, and that's how the book of Acts ends, then it didn't die out and get reborn, you know, 800, 900, whatever, thousand years later. Now, unfortunately, history is written by the victors, the people that win, if you will. And so much information, though, can be gained by reading how those who, quote-unquote, won wrote about those whom they conquered. For example, the Roman Catholic Church considered groups like the monotheists and the partisans and the Sibelians as heretic. Why? Because, according to them, quote-unquote, they rejected the creeds of the mother church regarding the Trinity and baptism in Jesus' name, not in titles. 
Well, that would be a group I would align with because it's biblical. It is also well documented that Europe was reached and evangelized with the Acts 2.38 message as early as the second century. Moravia, Gaul, China, and North Africa all heard the apostolic message of Acts 2.38 and 39. Catholic historian John Henry Cardinal Newman wrote about the conflicts of doctrine of the oneness believers during the first 400 years of the Catholic Church in which he stated their doctrine, again oneness, prevailed among the common people then and at earlier date to a very great extent and the true faith, Catholicism, was hardly preached in the churches. Well, praise God. So you can read from the victors and realize that they might have been winning, but they were losing. There was a preacher named uh, Donatus, or Donatius maybe, uh, around uh, 73 to 300 AD, who preached the book of Acts. And in 350 AD, those who followed his teaching from Acts numbered 400 churches. In 340 AD, during this time of his preaching, a meeting was held about this by the Roman Catholics, and this is what they recorded. The Holy and Catholic Church likewise anathematizes those that say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the same person. Such are these denominated partipasons among the Romans and by the Sabellians. So again, here they are anathematizing people that they feel are heretic, but it's the people who are preaching the truth. It's still prevailing. The oneness of God is still being preached. But that's not all. I don't know how to pronounce this man's name, but I do know how to pronounce what it means. It means little wolf. In 320 to 340 A.D., a man, again, meaning little wolf, went and preached and taught the book of Acts, and history records the baptism of millions of Europeans who also spoke in tongues as they were baptized in Jesus' name. In 560 A.D., Pope Pelagius said, There are many who say they are baptized in the name of Christ alone and by a single name only immersion. Good. There's only one name to be baptized in, the name of Jesus Christ. In the northern coastal area of Germany, until the 7th century, so whenever they first started hearing it, until the 7th century, they only knew and practiced the baptism in Jesus' name formula. For 526 years, apostolic Celts in Britain kept the 14th of Nisan, the Passover, celebrating this, and preached a Jesus-name apostolic message from Acts 2.38. And in 663, it was still the dominant religion by far. Around this time, the Islamic influence began to spread. And the Moors in Spain actually defended two groups of people from the Catholic Church, the Jews and one God born-again believers. But in 1717, the Catholics regained control of Spain and as a result, killed an estimated 6 million people, including Muslims, Jews, and oneness apostolic believers. 
In 730, Pope Zachary was forced to acknowledge that baptism in the name of Jesus, according to Acts 2.38, was dominant. He said, and I quote, Acts 2 was never absent from the medieval scene. It lasted for centuries, and the church maintained the apostolic message. Wow. In 858 to 867 A.D., Pope Nicholas was also forced to admit, and I quote, Jesus' name, baptism, was the valid and biblical one. You're right. It is. It still is. During the ninth century, the Catholic system nearly experienced failure. Several historians note that the Acts 2 doctrine was the religion and estimated that the ninth century had more apostolic, one God, tongue-talking, Jesus-name-believing Pentecostals than any other century, including through the 20th. On August 28, 882, Pope John VIII had an apostolic preacher named Miamberto arrested for preaching against the Trinity. On June 26, 909, Archbishop Hervé of Rheims stated it had been impossible for many years to convene a Catholic synod due to three reasons, one of them being the infestations of false Christians professing Jesus' name baptism. Hallelujah. If I'd have been alive, I'd have been one of those false Christians. In 1100 AD, you can read of the multitude of free thinkers, which is another term for apostolic, because they believe the Bible and not religious creeds. These free thinkers, these apostolics, numbered four million in Europe alone. In fact, many scholars refer to them as apostolic holiness, referring to their hellfire preaching, baptism in Jesus' name, and speaking in tongues. 1284 80. Pardon the history for a minute here. I love history. Maybe you don't, but just bear with me, okay? We're on the bus together. The, the wheels are still going round and round. We'll get there. Just stay with me, okay? In 1284, Ursinus of Ethiopia, an Ethiopian scholar, declared that baptism in the name of Jesus Christ alone was the only valid way to be baptized. That testimony in 1284 AD reflects and indicates that Philip's witness to the eunuch over 1,200 years earlier in Acts chapter 9 was still, or Acts chapter 8, was still continuing 1,200 years later. From 1,300 onward, you can read of the great Anabaptist movement. These Anabaptists rejected infant baptism, and they only baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They rejected the Trinity, and they declared the oneness of God. In 1565, the International Federation of Apostolic Churches, headquartered in Moravia, stated that the eradication of the Trinity idea must be the goal of the attempted Reformation. Hmm. Between 1400 and 1573, 40 apostolic organizations were birthed from the revival in Moravia and spread across the globe. Moravia was an apostolic haven producing, like Antioch, producing missionaries to go everywhere. 
Between 1520 and 1532, apostolic Pentecostalism, including baptism in Jesus' name, speaking in tongues, believing the oneness, and living holy, was all throughout Luther's and, uh, Germany and Zwingli's Europe. Thomas Munzer in 1521 challenged Luther after stating that he felt the direct infilling of the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues. Zwingli, a Swiss Presbyterian minister, visited the meetings of these apostolics and reported in his own words, these are the prophets of my time. He also referred to people being filled with the Holy Spirit and the symptoms were something like epilepsy as they had falling sickness, indicating their dynamic and vibrant praise and worship as God would fill them with the Holy Ghost. History records that the following, this, the following I'm about to read to you of how they treated apostolics. And I quote, The Catholics burned the Anabaptists. The high Protestants drowned them. At the Diet of Speer in 1529, Catholics and Lutherans subjected them to the death penalty. Luther himself in 1531 agreed to the death penalty for these because they were rebaptized out of the Trinity. Luther and other reformers of his day violently opposed any opposing view, prosecuting both the heretics, the apostolics, as well as Jews because of their monotheism. As stated earlier, I mentioned John Calvin and what he did to Michael Servetus. Uh, by the way, I've read a book called Out of the Flame, and books were taken from the flame and, and preserved. And actually, he himself, John Calvin, kept a book, and it lasted through history. In 1622, Quakers were deported from England, many of them unfortunately sold as slaves, but their tongue-talking experience went with them, and tongue-talkers reached the Americas. Anybody ever been to Pennsylvania? Anybody ever been through Pennsylvania? Anybody know that that's a state in the Union? Okay. Anybody know who it's named after? William Penn. Did you know William Penn wrote the Sandy Foundation in which he said, and I quote, I do not believe Christ to be the eternal Son of God. I express nothing that diverts Christ of His divinity. I deny a trinity of separate persons in the Godhead. The founder of the state of Pennsylvania, whom it's named after, agrees with the Bible. During the 1700s, we read of countless occurrences of people speaking in tongues, as well as other notable miracles during this century of religious fervor. In 1734, John and Charles Wesley went to Moravian Christians for their doctrine. Both of them converted and witnessed glossolalia, speaking in tongues, among the Moravians in the colony of Georgia, which was founded only two years earlier in 1732, as well as when they traveled and saw them in Europe. At the turn of the 19th century, the 1800s, there was a great movement among, and you might laugh, but they were the Shakers and the Quakers. That's what they called them. With tens of thousands receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues. In fact, during the 1800s, reports of speaking in tongues came from places as diverse as China, Sweden, and India. In 1854, we're getting close to the Civil War in the United States. 1854, there was a 10-year-long revival in Lebanon, New York. This means it lasted through the Civil War, where thousands of people became spirit-filled tongue talkers. 
In fact, some historians estimate that by 1856, there were over 160,000 people who spoke in tongues in the United States. During the 1800s, many notable theologians rejected the Trinity and were faithful adherents of and to the oneness belief. Dr. Nathaniel Emmons, who was a congregational pastor, Professor Moses Stewart, a Greek scholar, Henry Ward Beecher, you might know him from history, a well-known evangelist, and Dr. Joseph Cook, who in a public debate in Massachusetts fiercely refuted the Trinity and received a thunderous standing ovation from the crowd of ministers gathered there to hear him preach. Between 1884 and 1904, 20-year span, Reverend Alvin E. Valley of Florida preached the Acts 2.38 message and saw thousands experience the new birth just like they did in the upper room. In fact, in one city alone, over 300 people were baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Spirit, speaking in other tongues. And everything I just read to you from history all took place before 1901 Topeka, Kansas, and 1906 Azusa Street. The church is not just a few hundred years old. The church started in Acts 2 in an upper room and has never died out. Period. Exclamation point. Amen. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. It doesn't matter if you call them free thinkers. doesn't matter if you call them shakers and quakers. doesn't matter if you call them apostolics and Pentecostals. If you believe what Jesus taught, if you believe what Jesus said, that type of message has survived throughout history and will survive. Amen. Some in Pentecostal and apostolic circles will trace their heritage only as far back as the 1900s. But I choose to begin with Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said those words. And Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, where the Holy Spirit was outpoured. Amen. I believe that in every century and on every continent, God's church still continues steadfastly. Can we pause and just shout for a moment and thank God? Hallelujah! Praise your name, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Now, let's come to a little bit more modern-day history as in just one year ago. Multiple reports from various different groups that do this type of data and, and take in all this information report that the fastest-growing, quote-unquote, religion today is Pentecostalism that asserts that the book of Acts is the Bible way of salvation. Many of them will add, including monotheism, oneness, and baptism in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. The Holy Spirit was poured out. And as witnessed in Acts 2, 1 through 4, it fell on that 120 that were gathered there. And then as Peter preached, we saw that another 3,000 were filled with the Spirit. But did you know that as of last year's reporting, about 35,000 people every day hear or experience the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the book of Acts? Let me put that in perspective for you. This zip code that we're in right now, 68134, is about 30,000 people. That would mean that this entire zip code in one day would be born again. 
Just to put that in perspective. There are towns in Omaha or in uh, Nebraska that are smaller than 35,000. You know, take, take Kearney, for example, about 29,000. That would be Kearney plus a few, if you want to think of it in that term. The Barna Group estimates that 49 million born-again people share their faith every day with someone. This was reported in 23. That means 134, 247,000 people daily are hearing the testimony of Jesus Christ or about 5,594 every hour. When Luke writes Acts 2, 46 and 47, he was not only describing the original 3,120 on the upper room that day who were the first to experience Pentecost, but he was pointing ahead prophetically to last year and to this year to the millions who would share their testimony and the nearly 13 million and 23 alone that received the Holy Ghost. By the way, last year about 1,500 people every hour received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It doesn't matter if, you know, the year of COVID people still got the Holy Ghost. It doesn't matter if people are getting sick still. People are going to get the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. I remember during the whole COVID debacle, we're online. All of you are at home except for a handful of us here. And people were getting the Holy Ghost at home, watching online. That's the power of this great, glorious gospel. I am so glad that we are a part of something bigger than a single denomination or a single group of people or a single family or even a single ethnicity. I am so grateful to know that what we're seeing happen and what I just showed for you in history and even recent history as of last year, that one day we're going to see that in heaven. The Bible talks about a great multitude which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues worshiping around the throne of Almighty God. Hallelujah! I can't wait to meet some of those free thinkers. I can't wait to meet Michael Cervatus. I can't wait to worship with some of those shakers and Quakers. And Show me how you did it in the 1500s and the 1600s. Let me show you how we did it in the 2000s. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, glory. Whew. And who said history was boring? They were wrong. So... What I've just described to you, to get to this point, um, I said all that to say this. <laughs> we have a wealth of treasure and history of what this message means and is. And we can look back to many people who have given the last full measure of devotion their lives for this gospel. And even still today, we know of people and missionaries, and many of you might even know of, of stories, and some of you, what you've even gone through with your own families, and what you've sacrificed when you've come to the Lord, and, and how people may have shunned you. Praise God. I'm so thankful, though, to know that it's, it's bigger than just us. It's bigger than just Nebraska. It's bigger than just the United States. Amen. It's bigger uh, than just our era and time. So I want to break down for these last few minutes we have together tonight what we started to look at with Acts chapter 2 
about continuing steadfastly because if I can see anything that was a common theme and thread through all of these different groups of people, even though they didn't know each other, and even though they didn't have, uh, you know, Google and internet searches and all this and ways to travel like we do, um, and, and may have not known that there were other groups such as themselves preaching and teaching the same message. What was the common theme? Well, it was Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly. So let's break that down. Uh, uh, the first thing is they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Well, we spent all of the month of January really going into that, so I'm not going to reiterate that. It's, it's all of those things, and I'll kind of come back to that at the end when we close tonight. But basically what this means is to have a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to God's truth. I remember when Shannon and I were dating and we made a commitment to one another that as we would pursue marriage, that God was our first love. And she looked at me and said, if you walk away, I'm still going to live for God. I ain't going to hell with you. And likewise, I said the same to her, love her to death, but I'm going to heaven. In other words, God is first in our marriage. We taught our kids that way. I love my kids. I ain't going to hell for them, though. I want them to come with me to heaven, but I'm not going to join them. And so it's that steadfast, single-minded fidelity. By the way, we at the Church of Omaha are not part of a denomination. Even our affiliation with the United Pentecost Church International, that's not a denomination. The United Pentecost Church International is a ministerial fellowship. Other denominations are what you would call um, a hierarchy, where uh, the superintendent, the, the leaders, the presbyters are in charge of the churches and, and the saints and so forth. Whereas in the United Pentecostal Church, every church is self-governing. And even as a superintendent in Nebraska, I don't have authority over a church. I only have authority over the credentialed ministers within that church. I can go and reprimand or whatever and, and, and intervene in a case. And if I'm invited by a church to come in, I still have to act within the guidelines of their bylaws. So it's a self-governing concept. It's not a denomination. Um, we are apostolic, which means of the apostles' doctrine. We are Pentecostal, which means the transformative experience of baptism in Jesus' name, of course, repenting and being filled with the Holy Spirit. One of my friends, he's a missionary, Craig Sully, said, while we can focus upon the diverse faiths that have erupted since the time of the church, and some even before, nothing is more important to us than the knowledge that there is a true church that continues in the apostolic doctrine. You might also note that throughout January, and even now into here, you're going to hear me continue to use the word mystery, the mysteries of God, that they overlap. That's because you can't talk about the oneness, but also you're also going to mention holiness. And you can't talk about the new birth, but what you also talk about, uh, you know, other things. And so it all interconnects together, and you really can see them uh, like that. What's interesting is while the word mysteries is plural there, the apostles' doctrine and other places where sound doctrine is mentioned, it's singular. It's always in the singular. So even though it's multifaceted, it's a singular doctrine. It's interconnected and it's inseparable. But what's odd to me is that the, every time you see the doctrines of men or devils mentioned, it's always plural. Let me show you Matthew 15, 9. He calls it the commandments 
and the doctrines of men. Mark 7, 7, same thing, doctrines and commandments of men. Colossians 2, he talks about the commandments and doctrines of men. And in 1 Timothy 4, 1, he mentions the doctrines of devils. Well, if it means nothing else, here's what it means. Satan has been at the heart of destroying the essence of God's oneness from the beginning. He manifests himself to steal, kill, and destroy. And he does this by disrupting, distracting, and dividing. He adds to and takes away from the word of God. So hence, all false doctrines do the same thing. But God's truth, the apostles' doctrine, remains consistent And whereas the other doctrines of men and devils are unreliable, we have a consistency within the Word of God. So we are committed to continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. The next part in Acts 2.42 is fellowship. It's translated from a Greek word, which means to connect or associate community or participation. It actually means to share in something. Now, if we just take it at its face value in English, um, possibly maybe even in, in Spanish or another language, we might think it's getting together or having a dinner or whatever. And it, while it's a part of that, let me explain what really this fulfills. It's not just food and fun. It can mean that to a small extent. But the true meaning is sharing something, and it goes deeper. The born-again believers... Uh, life is to be full of fellowship. Here's what it is. We share the same Jesus experiencing the same new birth. We share the same Word which governs and guides our lives daily. We share the same love for God and His church. We share the same desire to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Watch this. It also means we share the same struggles and we share the same victories. We share the same desire to live for Him and to be with Him one day. We share the same joy of making disciples of all nations. So it's sharing and all of that. It's, it's not, yeah, it's going and having fun. Yes, it's having a meal together. But it's realizing that you need the church and the church needs you. God does not mean for any one of us to be isolated and alone. In fact, biblically speaking, you can't be the church by yourself because it's a many-membered body. You might be the hand. Well, you're the right or the left. You're not, one of the, you're not both. So you need to connect to the other parts of the body to be whole. Amen? The next thing he mentions in Acts 2.42 is breaking of bread. The breaking of bread here is communion. Not breaking of bread like going and having you know, a meal together. That's included in fellowship. This breaking of bread is literally communion. His body and His blood. Communion to the first century believers was not a once a year sacrament that they did. It was not meant to only be partaken of a few times a year. Uh, and proof of that is in 1 Corinthians when Paul says, as oft as you do this. In other words, implying you're going to do this often. We try at our church to commemorate this at least four times a year to to maintain an element of sacredness to it, but also to do it more than just once a year. But I want to just point out something here. If you're having a Bible study together, a couple families you've gotten together, and you feel like you want to do some communion together. If your heart is right, if you've examined yourself, and you feel God leading you to do that, You know, by all means, do that. 
pause for a moment and go get, you know, some bread that you can use and go get some juice you can use as the wine and just take a moment and say, we're going to pause and reflect on this. Okay? Again, don't make it a, a habit. I, I think we should keep it respectful, but I think also it's okay to do it more frequently. Because again, for them, it was, it was remembering He came, He died, He rose again. Hallelujah. I would recommend if you're going to do it with your family to please read 1 Corinthians 11, specifically 17 through 34, the last half of the chapter, and really take that in, read through that. It says to examine yourself and not to eat unworthily or drink unworthily because if you do, you drink damnation to yourself. And by all means, if you have a question, call me, call one of the pastors. We can help you through that. The last part in this Acts 2.42 was prayers. They continued steadfast the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Notice here, prayers is plural. This means it wasn't just a, a, a segmented time of prayer or that they all said the same prayer together or it was the quote-unquote hour of prayer. No, this was prayers, meaning that there was personal daily prayer by each one of them, there was also meditation, which is a part of prayer, intercession, which is another type of prayer, supplication, and even worship, as well as corporate getting together for prayer. It's why you read throughout the Bible where Paul said this, continuing instant in prayer. He wrote in Ephesians and said, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Alicia, if it was that easy for Bible quizzing, I would win every time. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Woo! I'd hit that buzzer and I'd score. But verses are longer than that. So. But I like these small verses. They're good. You know, but there's a verse before it says rejoice evermore. That's even easier. Woo, bam, I got that one too. I'm winning. James 5, listen to this, verse 14. Is any sick among you? We do this every service. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. If he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So guess what? If you need to come, and, and, and this is not confessional, we don't believe in that, but if you need to come and say, hey, I want to be forgiven, this can happen too during that time. It's biblical. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. Do you see that happening during every one of our services? I'm going to have to move these chairs because we don't have enough room up here anymore. We don't. We don't. It's true. It's getting crowded. The other day I felt like I was back in Brazil. All I could do was jump up and down because it was so crowded. You know, I was like, I had to move out back to do some shouting. So praise God. Um, verse 16, effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Jude 20 and 21, but you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. In 1885, Joseph Scriven wrote the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, extolling the vital value of consistent prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. 
All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. There's two more stanzas, but you can look it up. Beautiful hymn. But more than just recognizing the hymn, let's make sure we're doing what he wrote about. It has been said, you can observe the strength of a church by the size of its prayer room. Well, I thought about that quote, and I thought, well, we don't really have a prayer room, which is why a few years ago I just deemed the whole church a prayer room. Brother Sal's not here tonight, but you can ask him and verify, Sister Linda, uh, when he comes in on Mondays and Thursdays, we pray, we walk through the whole church many times. I'm, I'm going to make sure I'm praying in every room. Every room is a prayer room. Downstairs is a prayer room. The Sunday school classrooms is a prayer room. I walk in your office, uh, Shannon and, and Lucas. I, I, I walk in, you know, Trevor and, and, and Jeremy's office, and we pray. We pray in all of them. Yeah. We want the Holy Ghost everywhere. I walk the property when the weather's right. Amen. I, my, I, I want to be a living prayer warrior. But with that, let me, let me add this, though. Can you help me make sure that the 10 minutes of pre-service prayer on Wednesday and pre-service prayer on Sunday is important to you and your family and be here and pray? It's, it's about 10.15 on Sunday and uh, 6.45 on Wednesday. So I think we can do our best. And I realize sometimes getting out of work, I get all that. And Iron Men, when we do our monthly prayer, I know I missed Monday because I was sick. Thank you for understanding and praying for me. I feel much better tonight. Praise God. But, you know, let's be here. If, if a prayer meeting is called, let's be here. Prayer is vital. It's essential. This is, this is a month about, another month about these essentials. Amen. Well, I want to close with this. While other religions chart their origin to men during the Reformation, we trace our apostolic Pentecostal roots to Jesus Christ and the birth of His church in Acts 2. We believe there is one God. We believe He is Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh. We believe you must be born again of the water and the Spirit, and you must be holy as God is holy, and you must prepare for His soon return. We also, in addition to those, believe these spiritual disciplines are essential. We fast faithfully and regularly. We study the Scriptures daily and believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible because God cannot lie. We return to God the tithe and give Him our offerings cheerfully. We faithfully attend and serve the local church. We praise passionately and worship wholeheartedly. We bear the fruit of the Spirit. We operate in the gifts of the Spirit. We make disciples of all nations and we preach and teach with anointed accuracy and passion. These Things identify who we are, what we are, and why we are that way. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's stand together. Praise the name of the Lord. Well, I want to continue steadfastly like those in Acts did and those in all these continents and centuries and places did. And should the Lord tarry another thousand years, I want history to record that here we were in Omaha, continuing steadfastly. Amen? Praise God. Love and appreciate all of you. Pray God's richest and blessings upon you. Um, look forward to seeing you Sunday. We're going to have a great time in Jesus' name. You're dismissed.